Well, we are making our way through the book of Joshua, and we're up to Joshua 7 and verse 2. Hear God's word. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Father, I thank you that we can learn from the lives of your saints that you've even put these stories into the scriptures in order to help us to grow. May we grow this morning as a result of meditating upon this, your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Three years ago, on an online uh, conversation, Andy Ryan posted this story about it, and he posted it, so I don't think you'll have a problem my sharing it with you. But he said, I was in a park, and a lady loudly called out, anyone who wants an ice cream cone, come over here. I headed over with several others. She handed out ices to them all and then asked me, who are you? I realized the rest were all her family. 30 years later, I still cringe. <laughs> I think we have all done things that are cringe-worthy. And some of them aren't sins at all. They're just uh, cultural faux pas that make us look stupid. But there are other times where we are really embarrassed to have to confess our sin to someone else. But we get past that embarrassment. We do the right thing. But counselors will tell you that there are people who find it so shameful and humiliating to confess their sins that they just can't do it. Their pride gets in the way of doing things God's way, and so they will either lie about their situation or minimize their sin or cover it up or ignore it in some way or deflect. In any case, I want to highlight nine super embarrassing things that happened to Joshua and the other leaders in verses 2 through 9. But before we get to those nine, I want to cover an embarrassment none of them had. It's an embarrassment that modern archaeologists have had uh, over uh, this passage. Um, uh, they didn't look at all of the clues that God gave to them in these two chapters as to the location of AI. They trusted their own intuitions and uh, their own wisdom more than they trusted Scripture, and now... Just in the last few years, they've got egg on their faces big time. So here are the, here's the raging question that's still ongoing right now, actually. Where is the modern location of Ai? Verse 2 starts, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel. Now this verse gives us two of 11 biblically inspired clues that the archaeologists really should have been paying attention to. Some did, but most did not. But the Bible needs to be the first and foremost thing that we go to in any area of life, but especially in uh, archaeology. And let me list all 11 of the inspired clues that God has given. We might as well do it right here uh, because we're going to need to deal with it at some point uh, later on. But I've got a point in bringing it up uh, right now. Uh, and, and by the way, some of you might have 
evangelical commentaries on Joshua in your houses that actually mess up on these 11 clues. So this is, this is relevant to us. Verse 2 says that the site has to be adjacent to Beth-Avon. Verse 2 and chapter 12, verse 9, both say that the site has to be east of Bethel and near to Bethel. Two verses in chapter 8 say that the perfect ambush site, because Joshua sets an ambush in chapter 8, the perfect ambush site had to be between Bethel and Ai. Fourth, chapter 8, verse 11 says that there was a militarily significant hill that was north of Ai where the Israelite army would be able to camp. I, again, it's a huge clue. Fifth, in chapter 8, verses 13 through 14, the inspired text says that the site had to be close to a shallow valley north of where Joshua and the decoy force would have been able to be seen by the king of Ai. Sixth, according to the first two verses of chapter 8, Ai had to have fortification walls around it because the text says it was a fortified place. I mean, the traditional site that... Uh, uh, liberals all point to, does not have fortifications. Okay? Uh, they, they, most of these clues are total fails on the liberal side. Seventh, according to chapter 8, verse 11, the location of the main gate of Ai had to have been facing north. According to chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 10, verse 2, Ai had to be a relatively small town. According to chapter 8, verse 25, there had to be women at that location. And there's plenty of archaeological evidence of women at the true location, including the two uh, pictures of the urn and of the, uh, of the bones that I've put into your outlines. Tenth, according to the dating of the whole book, the city could not have been destroyed when the liberals claimed that Ai was destroyed or when Joshua went into, they got it in the 1200s. No, uh, it had to be destroyed in the 15th century uh, B.C., and a 15th century scarab was unearthed in 2013 as confirming evidence of the true site's uh, date of destruction. In fact, uh, Christianity Today voted it as the most important archaeological discovery to be found in 2013. Now, we didn't need it. We got the Bible, right? But it is another embarrassment to the liberals. Eleventh, according to Joshua 8, verses 19 and 28... Ai was burned, and so the site needs to have evidence of destruction by fire in the 15th century B.C. Now, there's only one site that meets all 11 biblical clues, and I've put a map of it as well as a, a picture of that into your outlines. It's Kirbet el Makatir. But the liberal archaeologists have had fail after fail on their preferred site, which is at Tel. And in their pride, they will not retract their position, their opinion. Their theory is that at Tel was ancient AI, and they have held tenaciously to that view ever since uh, W.F. Albright's 1924 article. Now, here is one practical application you can get from this little bit of information I've given you here. Uh, you can judge how conservative... Uh, and how biblically oriented your commentaries on Joshua are by whether or not they still hold to Albright's, I think, completely discredited uh, viewpoint or whether they're driven by Scripture alone. You see, even evangelical archaeologists are often afraid to disagree with the status quo of liberal archaeology because they don't want to be accused of being academic dunderheads, right? They want to they wanna fit in. But despite excavations at Etel for seven years, no one has been able to come up with any evidence that could reconcile that site with the Bible. One of the excavators, Joseph Calloway, finally said in disgust, AI is simply an embarrassment to every view of the conquest that takes the biblical and archaeological, archaeological evidence seriously. So how do people handle this massive embarrassment? Well, liberals, and sadly some evangelicals, won't admit that they were wrong. Their pride gets in the way. Instead, they respond in one of two ways. Evangelicals just tend to ignore the whole discussion and uh, hope it'll go away. And the liberals just say, oh, the Bible's wrong. And um, uh, I'll give you uh, one example. 
um, they say it's myth. For example, one scholar said that archaeology, quote, has wiped out the historical credibility of the conquest of Ai as reported in Joshua 7 through 8. And I say the opposite. I say the Bible has completely wiped out the credibility of that archaeological team and the other scholars who build their case upon it. Uh, Bible and Spade Archaeology magazine said, the scholarly consensus about the biblical account of AI is that those events never happened. Hey, this is a warning. If you think that it's important for you to line up with the scholarly consensus, just realize the scholarly consensus many times is hostile to the Bible, and in this case, it thinks the Bible is dead wrong. I could care less about scholarly consensus. I want jot and tittle scripturalism to be my, uh, my guide. Contrast to, to how they handle things, Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. In other words, the Bible is the truth standard by which all other claims to truth are judged, okay? And there is certainty that they cannot be wrong. These commentators are basically lying about the evidence, lying about the Bible. They're quite willing, and, not, and they won't admit they're wrong, but they're quite willing to say the Bible is wrong. And lying to cover over our embarrassment is not the Christian thing to do. Joshua, will see, models a much, much better way. Unlike the liberals and liberal-leaning evangelicals, true conservative archaeologists have, at least for the most part, admitted, if they ever did buy into the et-tel theory, they have admitted that they were duped and they've acknowledged that only Kerbet el Makatir fits 100% of the biblical evidence, and as a result of their new digs there, they have produced a massive amount of confirming evidence of exactly what the Bible says on every point. And so repentance, public retraction, affirming that they should have paid closer attention to the 11, 11 biblical clues is a very encouraging sign that these people are handling embarrassment in a biblical way, in the Joshua way. And I bring this archaeological point up for two reasons. First, it's an easy way to introduce the location of AI. We're going to need to know that later on. I figured might as well bring it up today. But the second reason is I think it's a perfect illustration of how we should handle our own embarrassment. Let's say we're one of the, the scholars who didn't follow the Bible. Some scholars did. They just say, no, nah, that can't be the, the true site. But let's say we're one of the evangelical scholars who just went along with uh, with the status quo, they handle their embarrassing wrong in a biblical way, just like Joshua uh, did. He admitted his wrong, he corrected the things that he was embarrassed over, and with only one exception that I'm aware of, it's with the Gibeonites, and we'll look at the Gibeonites at another time, he didn't repeat uh, these mistakes. He did repeat it one more time with the Gibeonites, but uh, we're not going to look at his corrections today. Instead, we're going to try to learn from each of these nine embarrassments that he faced in this chapter. First, Joshua failed to seek God's guidance, and he overestimated the wisdom of man. There is no evidence whatsoever that Joshua or any of the leaders prayed or sought God's guidance, and there's plenty of evidence that they did not. Flush with the excitement of a supernatural victory at Jericho, he just dove into the conquest of the next city up the road. Let's read verses 2 through 3. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Now there was nothing wrong with sending out spies. I mean, they did that under God's authorization for Jericho, right? Nothing wrong with that. Uh, they were no doubt experts in their field. But he should have sent them out prayerfully, and he certainly should have evaluated their recommendation uh, prayerfully, especially since the kind of conquest that they were involved in required that they receive divine revelation on how to engage in every facet of their war. See, they didn't deal with every city in exactly the same way. Some God commanded them to burn. Some God said, uh, you can take loot. And others, he said, no, you've got to devote all the loot to 
to, to, to the temple. Uh, there were variations in how God guided them on each one. Remember we saw last week that this was harem warfare, not ordinary defensive warfare, and it always required divine revelation. Now here's the point. There is a lot in these verses about what the spies said, and there's nothing about what God said. Nothing whatsoever. And indeed, in chapter 8, God will tell Joshua to do the exact opposite of what these spies said. God will tell him to take the whole army. And so this was a cringe-worthy decision on Joshua's part. And this is a warning to us. Uh, we live in a day and age when there are experts for everything. And just because a person is expert in some uh, area does not mean that he is uh, uh, prone even to applying the Bible to all of life, the only infallible revelation that we have. But whether we're talking about looking into the Bible or praying for uh, God to give new guidance through prayer, God wants us to involve Him in all of our decision-making and we still are responsible to evaluate what the experts say. We need to be Bereans who make sure that the advice we receive is consistent with what God has said. In fact, I would say that the more educated that a, uh, a scholar is in his area of expertise in our secular educational system, the less likely that he is to be in uh, being biblical. And that's because he spent so many years immersed in the sewer of uh, his uh, secular pagan thinking. Now, I'm not saying that was the case with these spies, but it is clear that they trusted their own observations, expertise, and intuitions uh, so much that they felt no need to pray for guidance. It just seemed like way too easy of a decision. It's obvious. We, we can take AI. It's a small city. I mean, if we, if we were able to conquer Jericho, why not AI? It's much, much easier than Jericho. And so um, uh, later uh, Joshua will uh, no doubt cringe over this because Philippians 4, 6 commands us to be prayerful in everything, everything. Commit your driving, your reading, marital intimacy, eating, relaxation to the Lord. Prayer should be the atmosphere in which we live. And Joshua certainly learned that lesson. We'll see that later on in the book. Now, the second embarrassment was that the leaders underestimated the power of the enemy. Look at verses 4 through 5. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And we'll tease that apart on, uh, on different uh, points here. But even though Ai was much smaller than Jericho, chapter 8, verse 25 says that there were 12,000 people that were packed into that little fort, probably from all of the farms that were around there. When they saw the army coming, they all went into the city uh, to, um, uh, uh, to um, defend it. And so AI was uh, well fortified, it was well entrenched, and its defenders were very, very motivated to fight with everything that they had. And so Israel underestimated the enemy's strength, they overestimated their own strength. They only sent 3,000 against a much larger force from AI. Now as a side note, let me just repeat from last week uh, why God held uh, these Israelites accountable uh, for these first two embarrassing points of the leaders. Last week we saw it was for two reasons. They were covenantally connected to the, reason, uh, to the leaders. That's the main reason. And then second, they didn't resist by suggesting that the leaders seek the Lord in prayer. Now the regulative principle of worship indicates that the state may only do what's explicitly authorized. Now there was an authorization to conquer the whole land of Canaan, Okay, so if this had been regular warfare, that would have been uh, authorization enough. But with harem warfare, a general command for conquest was not enough. Every facet of the war needed to be authorized by God. As I mentioned, some cities would be burned, some not. Um, uh, th there were various ways in which they were to take it, and again, by divine revelation. And therefore, this failure to seek guidance should have been resisted. Generals, 
uh, they could have uh, said to Joshua, ah, you know, before we do this, let's go seek the Lord in prayer because the Lord may have some instructions on how we go about this. And other officers could have done that. Even individual families could have said, ah, we're going to bow out on, on, on this one. And this means that corporate guilt was in part also individual guilt. Now, you might think that going into battle against AI without prayer was not a huge deal, because after all, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what they had discovered at Jericho, right? And that's true. But the flip side of that is also true, that if God is not for us, anything can be against us, even a tiny little fortification like AI was. And um, you can see from the picture in your outlines of the reconstructed uh, model of AI, it was pretty small. Uh, they probably didn't realize how many people were packed into it because it was so small, but 12,000 people were crammed into that small fort. So how do we apply this uh, to ourselves? Well, I think it's critical that we not pridefully underestimate the strength of the enemy today. When we have had a success like Jericho, it's easy to begin taking credit uh, in subtle ways rather than deflecting praise to the Lord, and it's a danger signal. Some of you kids may have had your parents uh, tell you the parable of the proud woodpecker. Um, the parable goes that this woodpecker was pounding away with his beak at the tree, and uh, God you know, sent a lightning bolt that split the tree from top to bottom. Well, a few minutes later, this woodpecker comes back with all of his friends and says, there it is, gentlemen, see what I did to that tree? He was taking credit, you know, for what God, what God had done. I think it's a great parable. Do we sometimes do that with work? And it's not to downplay what you have done in your own hard work, because to downplay your own things that God has done through you is a false humility. I'm not talking about that. In fact, we'll deal with that a little bit later on. But do we grow pr proud over our intellectual accomplishments or our success at business? or our gifts, or our people skills, or something else that God has enabled us to do. Then when we fail at the very thing we are so proud of, embarrassment kicks in big time. You see, pride is at the root of all embarrassment. Even the social faux pas embarrassments, you know, like when you split your pants, uh, or when... Um, you know, you've got flatulence, or you spilled a drink, or something like that. Uh, now, it can be you'd be mortified that you've uh, messed up somebody else's thing, and it's not an embarrassment. But if it's an embarrassment issue, uh, many, many studies have shown that it means that your sense of self-worth has been lowered in the eyes of others. And sadly, psychology today says this is a good thing. This pride is a good thing. It says a child's need to feel proud and to avoid feelings of shame is a fundamental motivation and remains fundamental throughout her life. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of these emotions in the psychological development and emotional health of our children. Shame is our instinctive response to personal failure or inadequacy, especially the public exposure of inadequacy. Embarrassment is a temporary and mild form of shame. Humiliation, aloneness, and self-hatred are severe forms of shame. So that's a secular perspective, right? But the need to feel proud of oneself is not really a biblical concept. Biblically, God says we need to be more concerned about God's esteem than we are of the esteem of others. And I'll just give you some examples. Peter was commanded, God will sometimes put into our lives things he wants us to do, he knows we'll crucify our pride because he knows no one is going to esteem us for doing those things. And um, one example is that Peter was commanded by God to eat with, associate with Gentile believers. Okay, Peter had no problem doing that when the Judaizers weren't around, but uh, the peer pressure from his uh, Judaizing friends made him not want to be embarrassed, and so he pulled away from them, and Paul calls Peter out in Galatians chapter 2 and says that this was unfaithfulness to Christ. His embarrassment of being seen around the, the uh, Gentile believers uh, was unfaithfulness to Christ. 
Uh, Peter was also very embarrassed when in John chapter 13, Jesus started washing his feet. He just like, I can't do this. This was too humiliating. But Jesus insisted. He knew it would be good for Peter's pride to be served. Now, in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees thought that they could embarrass Jesus by, when they realized he ate with sinners and, you know, tax collectors, pointing that out publicly. It's like, what is with that? They would be embarrassed to be caught eating uh, with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And they knew that embarrassment is a very powerful social motivator or demotivator. And so they thought, hey, we can humiliate Jesus. Far from being embarrassed, Jesus could care less what the Pharisees said. He, he's driven by what the Father has commanded him to do. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. So he gloried in God's call. But back to the embarrassment in Joshua 7, 4 through 5, we must not underestimate or overestimate the power that we have in Christ Jesus. We love, and I love, to quote 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Okay, that's God's grace for our Jerichos. But we need to pay attention to the verse that comes right before it. Verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As one person worded it, Yesterday's victory does not make a believer immune from defeat today. But when you are convinced, without Christ I can do nothing, you go to the Lord daily for strength to do the things. Because you realize, without his strength, uh, you won't be able to do the task. Or if you can do the task, you're going to mess up in some other way as you do that task. You may have a wrong motive. You may not be doing it to God's glory. Or you may not have God's anointing upon what you are doing so that it's transformational. Everybody else thinks, okay, that was a good job. But it's not doing anything transformational in other people's lives. And so Jericho reminds us of Paul's admonition in Ephesians 6.10 to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. AI reminds us of the truth of 1 Corinthians 10.12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now Joshua could have for years cringed like this other guy I started with. For 30 years later, why would you cringe 30 years later? But anyway, I, do, I just laugh at myself on things like that. But Joshua could have cringed many, many years later, but far from cringing, he highlights his mess-ups by including them in the Scriptures so that we can learn from them, so that we can know we're not alone in messing up like this. All of us have had these embarrassing mess-ups, haven't we? He handled his embarrassment correctly. The fourth embarrassment is the opposite of the one we just looked at. It could be very easy for the Israelites to later cringe over the fact that the last clause of verse 5 was true of them. Last clause says, Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Ouch. Rather than regrouping and saying, Hey, we messed up big time on that. Uh, let's go attack Jericho again, but this time let's do it after seeking God's counsel. Um, what do they do? They retreat. Uh, they, uh, they think there's no way we can fight. The wind is taken out of their sails. They are demoralized. They are ready to quit. But that too can be a wrong approach. It is a false humility. I was plagued with this kind of false humility for a long time. It is inverse pride. We don't often think of it as pride, but it's inverse pride, what some people call upside-down pride. It's an unwillingness to do what God has clearly called us to do because we're fearful of failure, and if we fail, we'll be royally embarrassed. We want to avoid embarrassment like anything. But fear is not compatible with faith, and we must resist it stoutly. It's so easy to give in to depression, discouragement, temptation to bail. And again, you can tell Joshua did not. 
He, he, he had gotten past this when he wrote his book because he records his embarrassment for men of all ages to see they're not alone in having this problem. But we also know he got past these embarrassments because he did not repeat these mistakes with the one exception of Gibeon, Gibeonites. He learned, he grew through the embarrassments. Uh, in fact, I think it's okay to laugh at your foibles in the past if you've already dealt with them. You've already confessed them to the Lord and you've gotten past. It's, a, it's not a good sign when we try to hide our pride behind a false humility that refuses to take on risks. And initially, Joshua did not respond correctly. And we know that because in verse 10, God rebukes him for praying the way that he was praying. Uh, next week, we're going to see that there was something wrong about his prayer. In fact, commentators point out there were three things wrong about his prayer. Uh, I'll just summarize here. God says to him in verse 10, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? God is not taken in by his prayer. He sees right through to the heart issues that drove that prayer. Joshua was not praying for God's glory. Now, he thought he was. He thought he was being humble, but he wasn't. Verses 6 through 8. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? Now, let's tease this apart. Verse 6, in my estimation, is a false humility. Now, it doesn't have to be. Uh, it can be, you know, sackcloth and ashes on your head. It can be a demonstration of uh, true humility uh, as well. Uh, but it can also be a demonstration of false humility. Just because you're on your knees throwing dust on your head does not mean you're humble. The Pharisees were able to do that. They quite frequently did that to, to try to prove that they were humble, right? Um, now, it's true, unlike the Pharisees, Joshua was mortified, but God will later point out he was mortified for the wrong reasons. Indeed, the reason we know it is a false humility is he immediately goes on the blame game with God. It's your fault, Lord. Why did you let us cross the Jordan? Did you do it to destroy us? I wish we'd been content and stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Really? If you think that Joshua has a humble, God-glorifying prayer here, uh, I, I want you to deal with th those issues. It is not consistent with humility. It's quite consistent with false humility, but it is not consistent with true humility. Even narcissists, who are the worst at this, will sometimes act humble, all the while very subtly hurling uh, you know, attacks or insults at the other person. Embarrassment 6. Verse 7 shows Joshua questioning God's goodness and accusing God of planning their destruction. Now, I cringe when I see these words. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? It's a rather bold accusation. Don't you care? Are you out to annihilate us? And I'm sure when Joshua looked back on this, he was embarrassed. And we too can cringe when we think about how we prayed and we were immature and brash. Next, he implies that the good old days were preferable to God's plans for their future. He says, oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Hey, it's good to be content, isn't it? Isn't it humble to be content? No, not if God has told you that you need to be aspiring to do something else. Then to be content is no longer humble because you're contradicting uh, God. When our eyes are on our failures and our circumstances, it's very easy for our vision to grow narrow and to become negative and to justify not doing what God has called us to do. And when we do that, we begin to go into reverse and look back and mistakenly think that the past is better than the present. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You know, this is very similar to the Israelites when they're wandering in the wilderness. They want to go back to Egypt. That is absolutely 
narrow tunnel vision crazy thinking. You know, they, they remembered the leeks and the garlics and, and the cucumbers and the melons. They're not remembering how horrible life was, the mud pits, you know, the taskmasters who were beating them. Someone once said, in order to be comfortable, we're willing to settle for a life of mediocrity rather than to move ahead in the pursuit of excellence. Let's not be like that. Then in verse 8, we get to the real issue. He is mortified of what other people will think about him, and he wonders, how in the world will I be able to respond? He says, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? What shall I say? He was embarrassed by the defeat. He was embarrassed by what other people would think of him. He didn't know what he himself would be able to respond to, him, to them. Now, you may question whether this was truly prideful embarrassment, so let me quote from some very excellent uh, commentators who have wrestled through the details, tiny details, of every word and clause in the text, like I have wrestled through them, and they've come to the same conclusion. Gordon Matties suggests that Joshua felt like he had lost his honor before his people. He was embarrassed. Another commentator speaks of Joshua's, quote, own shame and embarrassment. Bowling and Wright speak of this as being a thoroughly embarrassing setback. Gangle and Wilhoit say, he fell on the ground, a shaken, embarrassed, and frightened general. Now, you can feel free to disagree with me on this point, but I'm convinced he was embarrassed. And because humans have a tendency to cover their embarrassment rather than to learn from it, we see something similar happening with Joshua. He covers his embarrassment by accusing God of failure in verse 7 and wishing they had never crossed the Jordan in the first place. Now, I think it's really hard to explain God's rather severe rebuke in verses 10 and following. Uh, it's a harsh rebuke to explain for any other reason than this. But you know what? It's easy for any of us to do exactly the same thing. Rather than admitting failure and owning our failures and investigating why we made the failure, it's very easy to make a pretense of humility all the while going on the attack and blaming others. Who stops to examine themselves and say, why on earth am I embarrassed? I shouldn't be embarrassed. Why am I embarrassed? What's going on inside of my heart? How would God want me to respond on this issue? Okay, let's look at the next embarrassment. Because of his negativity, he next loses all faith to conquer in verse 9. And he says, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. What a negative affirmation. It completely contradicted the infallible promise that God had already made to him that he would completely, completely conquer Canaan if he would approach it in faith. It completely contradicted God. But that's the nature of negative affirmations. They kill our faith. Now, obviously, he had faith for his salvation, but he lost faith in conquest. So we can have faith in certain areas and lose faith in other areas. And how easily and quickly we can go from the certainty of faith to the certainty of failure. It's happened to me over and over. You know, and one day I am just absolutely certain the Lord's going to do great and awesome things. And then, and then I go to thinking, ah, this is, this is going to be hopeless. And I have been so prone to making negative affirmations that kill my faith that several years ago I conscripted my son Joel and my wife uh, Kathy to hold me accountable on this and to point out to me Give him permission. Point out to me every time I make a negative affirmation. And I instantly put that off and say, okay, here's, I repent of that. Here's how I should have phrased that. In fact, I gave myself a pretty thick uh, uh, paper of homework that I studied for a long time of what the Bible says about these negative affirmations. And it has helped me hugely. And I'm willing to give it to you guys if uh, any of you struggle with the same thing. The last embarrassment in these verses was mistakenly thinking that God would be embarrassed by this defeat. Now, God will soon tell Joshua, hey, I planned this. I guaranteed your defeat. I was not blindsided at all, and uh, uh, he certainly had nothing to be embarrassed about. But Joshua says, 
For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? I mean, it sort of sounds like he's consumed with a passion for God's glory, which is the way some people take it, but it's not. Why does God rebuke him so harshly in verse 10? I believe it's because Joshua was somewhat manipulative in this prayer. If Joshua had reworded this statement to say, Lord, if you don't do things my way, how on earth are you going to be glorified? Uh, he would realize, well, yeah, I guess that is kind of a proud statement, isn't it? Well, that's exactly what he's saying here. It's exactly what he is saying here. And I think it is so cool that God displays Joshua's sinful failings for all to see so that we can relate to him and learn from his failures. And yet hopefully we can also relate to Joshua getting past those embarrassments too. I mean, we have the same grace available to us that helped him to get past those embarrassments. In any case, God is not too concerned about what the pagans think of him. He could change their hearts in a moment if he wanted to do that. And he's not too concerned when the church has massive failures today. I guarantee you. You know, people say, oh, what's God going to? No. God is probably the one who is causing the church to have failures because we're not living consistently with the Word. And he's just saying, okay, I'm going to let the pagans win over you over and over again. God's not concerned about that. He is more interested in our holiness than he is in our comfort. That's just the way God is. And Joshua's focus is more on his own embarrassment and how the pagans' lowered view of God would negatively impact him and Israel. And so I want to conclude with a few words about how we can learn from our embarrassing moments. First, recognize embarrassment for what it is. It is a prideful reaction to your sins and foibles being exposed to others. It's really a form of pride. Second, seeing it for what it is can lead you to thank God for yet another opportunity to crucify your pride. Whenever I have had an embarrassing moment, and believe me, I still have them. Uh, you know, you can't preach very long without making some mistake in the pulpit, and then you have to tell people, no, that was wrong. Uh, I blew it on that. So whenever I have had my embarrassing moments, I just tell the Lord, thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to crucify my pride. I hate my pride. I want to be rid of my pride, so help me to grow through this. And it immediately helps because it takes my focus off of what other people are going to think about me into, Lord, I want your favor upon my life. It really does uh, help. It gives a positive God focus. Third, immediately commit yourself to taking the actions needed to correct what you were embarrassed over. Don't hide them or rationalize them. Correct them. In other words, learn from your failures and do not repeat them. As one of John Maxwell's titles that I like to hand out to the young men says, fail forwards. <laughs> fail forwards. We're all going to fail, but make sure you grow through it, that you're moving forwards as a result of that failure. Figure out what led to the failure, correct those deficiencies, figure out uh, what can strengthen your character for the future. Fourth, don't respond with false humility. It's so easy to respond to our embarrassments, trying to be spiritual, ah, you know, trying to force ourselves to have some kind of humility, and we come up with some false humility. Well, that assumes you know the difference between true humility and false humility. And so I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to quickly outline 10 of many differences that you can find in good counseling books. And I've included a totally different chart on the back that gives some additional material you can ponder on. Please don't look at the chart on the back uh, because you're not going to pay attention to the 10 things I'm going to be taking you through right now. Uh, and so as soon as I say don't look at the back, everybody's going to start looking at the chart on the back, right? But do try to, you can look at it later. You've got plenty of time to look at it later, but try to go through and process these 10 differences between true humility and false humility. First, true humility acknowledges one's shortcomings and sins, but is more grieved over the sins than over the consequences of the sin. False humility only tends to acknowledge the obvious shortcomings, the sins that are socially acceptable, but false humility will still try to avoid the consequences of other people looking down on you. So let this first point 
uh, motivate us to be, want to be more grieved over the sins than we are over the consequences of our sin. Second, true humility works towards genuine change, whereas false humility is more concerned about appearances and often puts the responsibility for change upon others. And many times it involves itself in blame shifting. But true humility takes ownership, works towards genuine change. So don't be taken in by the false humility of others that's not willing to change. Third, true humility cares about God's opinion and thinks about self the way God does, including thinking about the good in you that God has been producing. Your true humility is never going to put down the good things that God has done in you. False humility will, uh, on the other hand, constantly be putting itself down and making self-deprecating statements in order to appear humble. By the way, people who have false humility, and I've been in this category many, many times, people who have false humility, they're quite okay with making self-deprecating statements so long as they know other people won't take that seriously and really believe the self-deprecating statements, right? <laughs> I think of the professor who acted embarrassed by the praise he received in one class because he wanted to appear humble. And so he just acts embarrassed by their praise. And in the next class, he was offended when he was criticized in exactly the same area. And because it was back-to-back, -back, the contradiction between his reactions of oh, being, you know, very humbled and... And then being very offended, he realized, wow, I've got a false humility. It took that for him to, to realize that. And so he only acted humble when people were proud of him. <laughs> That's the point. Fourth, true humility is preoccupied with God, whereas false humility is preoccupied with self and what others think. So any expressions of humility that the false humility has uh, are going to be self-serving, even if there is some language about caring for the other person. Fifth, true humility admits to all sins, while false humility admits to the small sins, or self-selected sins, or socially acceptable sins, or the sins you've already been caught in, right? When Joshua will later give Achan the opportunity to confess Achan still minimizes his sin, even though he's caught red-handed. He only confesses to, yeah, I did see that, and I did take it, and I, I hid it. Yeah, I did, I did steal. I, that was pretty uh, obvious. But he doesn't call his sin covenant-breaking and uh, a, a horrible offense to God, an abomination worthy of death. He doesn't describe any of those things. We need to describe our sins as being as horrible as the Scripture defines our sins to be, and we need to confess all of them. Sixth, true humility is able to laugh with others at our own foibles because we know our own worth is not based on what other people think about us, their impressions of us. False humility is forced to laugh when people laugh at our foibles because it's socially expected we're going to laugh along with them. But they sit for days stewing about the insult that happened back then, about that incident. Seventh, true humility is without pretense, whereas false humility often pretends a humble tone of voice while saying proud things. I mean, you can spot fake humble tone of voice that sounds condescending. It's trying to sound humble. Eighth, true humility is quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, whereas false humility wants to speak, not listen, is easily offended when you disagree. A Joshua got quite the tongue lashing from God in verses 10 through 15. Now, if someone gave you that kind of a tongue lashing, you might be tempted to think, this is just totally unfair, and just not listen to anything that was in there. All you're thinking about is the things that were missed. You're missing all of this when you're looking at me. What does Joshua do? He immediately repents. He resumes a true humility before the Lord. He wants to go. He's eager to be corrected. But it's so easy for any of us to grow, go from true humility to false humility without even realizing it. Ninth, 
The Apostle Paul says that one manifestation of false humility is an asceticism and self-denial that denies itself good things in order to appear to be humble and to appear to be holy in front of others. But true humility recognizes that sin comes from the heart, not from pleasure. Tenth, true humility does not need to prove itself to others, whereas false humility is very preoccupied with proving our humility to others. In fact, it sometimes will pridefully list all of the humble things that we have done. But true humility does not need to prove itself to others. It operates before the Lord. Now, obviously, there's a lot more that could be said on this subject, but I think just beginning to work through these things that are in our hearts before the Lord, I think, is a good exercise. Now, will you be taken advantage of if you're a humble person? Probably. <laughs> Get over it. You will be, right? But you will have God's favor. And so don't respond to this sermon by saying, you know, I'm just so humiliated that my heart was exposed by God in this sermon. Now, don't, don't be humiliated and embarrassed. Instead, thank the Lord that you can be restored to the path of true humility. We all experience embarrassing moments because we all have at least some residue of pride left. Make sure you learn from your embarrassing moments and grow through them. And make sure that those embarrassing moments don't paralyze you and make you continually cringe. The fact that we are still cringing years later shows there's still some crucifixion work of our pride that needs to take place. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. And there's so much more in this passage we could have looked at, but Father, we thank you uh, for exposing the things that are in our hearts. We want our hearts windows to be wide open for the light of your Holy Spirit to shine in them. We want to grow, keep growing in you. And I pray that you would help us as a people to become as holy as it is possible for a sinful people to become. We want to be more like you. And so I pray even in this area of humility uh, that you would give us the heart of Christ, uh, the most humble of men ever. Uh, bless this, your people, Father. Encourage their hearts. May they not be discouraged as they look at the deficiencies that this uh, sermon may have pointed out, but rather may they fix their eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.